Good morning. As you are pulling out your Bibles, have you guys heard of the term um, bully pulpit? The internet tells me that a bully pulpit is a conspicuous position that provides an opportunity to speak out and be listened to. And so while you guys are pulling out your Bibles, I'm going to use the bully pulpit for a second. Um, Scott Hall today is celebrating a birthday. Yeah? I'm not going to say how old he is, but he is halfway to 100. So, um, but no, in all seriousness, you look good for being so old. So, um, I just wanted everyone to know. So, wish Scott Hall a happy birthday. You know, don't feel bad for him because I got to get this in right now because he's sneaky. It will come back to get me. So, um, so turn with me to uh, Luke. We're going to continue in Luke chapter 11. And we are going to be looking at verses 29 through 36. Luke 11, verses 29 through 36. Join me as I read. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, speaking of Jesus, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be, wit, be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore... Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we take the next few minutes to look at what Jesus has told us, what he told that generation I just pray that you would give us the wisdom to see your word. I pray that you will, um, through the Holy Spirit, give us the heart and the ability to apply it to our lives. And most, most importantly, Father, I just pray that we realize who you are and really who we are not. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that you've given us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we consider this passage um, this morning, um, there's a quote floating around out there, and I don't know if you've heard it or not, but the quote is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's been, it's been, um, or, or, or been said that Stephen R. Covey is the one that said this, and you may be familiar with Stephen Covey. If not, you've probably heard or, or read some of his books, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. 
Um, and there are several follow-ups to that, seven habits of highly effective teens, the eighth habit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll admit, I, I've, I've read the book. Um, I enjoyed it, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I've try, tried to apply to what I've read. Um, Michaela's probably sitting over here saying, yeah, how'd that work out for you? Um, but all kidding aside, you know, many of you have probably read or consulted one of a million self-improvement books out there. I bet if I asked you to raise your hand, probably many of you at one time or another have, have you know, been looking to improve yourselves and have gone out and consulted one of these books. And I guess I ask you, how did that work out for you? You know, you, you, you pull up one of these books, one of the, you know, latest great books out there that's just going to tell you how to get all your time back or, or how to fit more of what you need to do into an eight-hour day or whatever the case may be. And some of these principles work. I, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say these books are bad. They are not bad. Um, you know, and they make a difference. Um, but overall, how many of you would admit that do you feel worse about yourself maybe after you read these books and you try to apply them? Because I don't know if you're anything like me. You, you, you devote a lot of time to reading them, and then maybe the next day you've already failed to apply whatever the principle is that you were trying to apply. And these, I mean, these authors do a great job, right? They go out there, they, they speak on these, and, and they make it look easy. But we can't even turn around and, and apply some of these most simple um, techniques or principles that they give us. And so this morning, I want us to keep this question in the back of our minds. What is your main thing? What is your main thing? Which brings us to our first point this morning. Since Jesus is the light of the world, we're told in Scripture that Jesus is the light of the world, we must remove ourselves from the work of salvation. We must remove ourselves for, from the, the work that is going to get us to eternity. So let's look at verse 39 of the passage I just read. The crowds are growing. Um, in some translation, the, 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 trans, or the translation in, in some versions of the Bible, I should say, the translation is that the crowds were falling over each other. There were thousands of people gathering. And Jesus, has, as he has in so many other times, he turns and he says, this generation is an evil generation. And why, why is Jesus saying this? I mean, you know, first of all, he, he, again, would not be somebody obviously consulted to grow churches. You know, in, in other ver or in other sections of the Bible, people are growing and they're coming to him and he starts talking about letting the dead bury their own dead. And here he has people falling over each other to come to him and he speaks and says, this generation is an evil generation. And we may look at that and say, well, what, what is, what's so evil? I mean, this is a defining turning point in Jesus' ministry. From this point forward, he is going to have more harsh words to say. This generation is an evil generation. And I think probably most of us would say that about our own generation, would we not? I mean, sin is celebrated, right? Abortion is celebrated and almost expected. Pornography is accessible everywhere. You, you, you just stumble upon it anymore. 
Assaulting other human beings and burning property is justified. I mean, we're, 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 just, we're just going down this road that I think we would look at that and say, well, yeah, that applies to us. But as we look, one of the big things as we look at Scripture and go to interpret Scripture is, is when you look at the hermeneutics, it's called, we look at the time. We, we look at, okay, who was Jesus speaking to here? And a lot of these things that I just read off would not apply to who he's speaking to. I, I don't think we would apply any of these things to the Pharisees. That's who he's speaking to. And the scribes. I mean, they were zealots for the law. They, they worshipped God. They kept the law. They offered sacrifices. They fasted. They did all of the things that, that you would expect them to do as, as religious leaders. In fact, I think... We may say now they were good people. I mean, we, we know the end of the story, right? We know how it goes. We may even say that, that there were good Christians. So, so there's a real contrast here. That they, why is Jesus calling them an evil generation when they are working so hard to keep the law? Why would he, would he level that accusation, if you will? And you may even look at that and say, man, that's harsh. That is harsh to turn around. They're, they're stumbling over themselves to get to Jesus. And he says they're evil. Turn with me to Luke, a little bit further back in Luke, to chapter 6. We'll take a look, a quick closer look at this generation that Jesus talks about. Chapter 6, verse 6. So we have Jesus in the synagogue. He's teaching. He's on, it's on a Sabbath. And a man came to Jesus, and his right hand was withered. In verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. In verse 8, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to, to them, I ask you, he's speaking to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said, uh, all he said to them, or to him, stretch out your hand to the man. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, there's something I want you to catch here. In verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. They weren't even questioning if he had the ability to heal. What does that tell us? They knew that he had power. They knew who he was. They, they, it was no mystery. It was no mystery like, Oh, come on. You know, no, they were expecting him to do it, and they were trying to figure out how to catch him breaking the law and healing on the Sabbath. And then they went on, and they were filled with fury. Just let that sink in for a second. He healed this man with a withered hand on Sunday, and they are filled with fury. Also, jump Jump forward to chapter 11 in Luke. An even more stark um, demonstration 
of, the, of their, their attitude and their approach to Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, another, another word or another name for, for Satan, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So do you see, they had all of the signs they needed. They did not need any more signs. They were not seeking to just understand more fully who Christ was. They had plenty of signs. Jesus had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He had cast out demons. He even walked on water. And yeah, the crowds didn't see that. But we can expect that that made its rounds. The, 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 it was out there. The information out there. This guy, this man was doing amazing things. But this was truly an evil generation. God tells us many places in his word that he cannot stand lukewarmness. He, he, he cannot stand that. He would much rather you be cold or hot. Don't be lukewarm. This generation only cared about their works, their self-importance. It was a heart issue. They had sinful pride. It was an issue of rejecting Christ and worshiping themselves and their works and what they were doing because they wanted to be noted on the street corner. When they fasted, you, you've read the sections in Scripture. When they fasted, they wanted everybody to know how, how rough it was for them. They were so much more holy that they were going through this exercise of fasting. And Jesus was flying in the face of all of that. It was, he was taking away all of that notoriety. And so they were angry. So Jesus says, this is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now that may catch you off guard there a little bit. How does Jonah, re, how does that kind of coincide with what G, Jesus is speaking about here? And most of you, right, you, we know the story of Jonah, right? What, what happened to Jonah? He, he was swallowed by a great fish, right? Lots of, lots of times you'll see it. He was, he was swallowed by a whale. And Jonah was, 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 um, uh, received a revelation from God to go to Nineveh to basically preach to them about God, to have them turn from their ways. And what did Jonah do? Jonah actually went the other direction, right? That, that was his initial plan. He actually was going to go the furthest place he could go away from Nineveh. Well, as we noticed, that didn't work out very well, right? Um, he goes, he gets on the boat. Um, obviously, God knows where he is, brings a, about this great storm. And um, the, the sailors, the crew of this boat, obviously knew of the power of God and, um, or uh, the power of a God. And they went to this new guy who was seeking passage on their ship and said, what have you done? This is not a good time. And, and Jonah knew he was caught. 
And what does Jonah, Jonah say? He, he throw, throw me over and, and everything will be better. And so finally, they try not to. They throw him over this great fish. We don't know if it's a whale or not, actually. This word tells us it was a great fish sent by God. It could just be a special one just for that time. He is swallowed by the fish. Spends how many days? Three days. Remember that. Three days in the whale. And then the whale or the fish pukes him up on the beach. And then God comes back to him and says, okay, now how about now? Go to Nineveh and do what I told you to do in the first place. And Jonah goes there. And so, so all of that, how, what, what does that have to do with, with this crowd and, and, them, and them demanding a sign? And actually, if you want to turn with me real quickly, just keep your finger in Luke and turn with me real quickly. Actually, we'll go to Jonah, but real quickly, Matthew chapter 12. Because Matthew gives us a little bit more information here on what Jesus said and how he relates this to Jonah. Chapter 12, verse 38. And this is the same account. Please, please understand, this is the same parallel account of what we're reading in Luke. Matthew records for us, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him and saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, catch this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we have, I think you're starting to see what Christ is talking about that here. He is talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. Jonah was, in a way, a... Um, I don't want to say he was a Christ, but he was a picture of what Jesus would do. What the, his death, three days in a whale. You could look at Jonah and actually, he, he, was, he was going to die. I always, for a long time, until actually I kind of started studying this, looked at the whale as punishment to Jonah. No, actually the whale was salvation, right? Jonah was thrown in to the ocean and he was going to drown. But Christ, or God through his sovereignty, brought about this fish to swallow him up and keep him there and then deliver him to the beach. And actually turn with me to Jonah. So I'm going to have you turn a couple different places in, in your Bibles. Jonah can be a hard one to, uh, to miss because it's like only two pages in my Bible. It's a quick book. Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. And we're going to read about what this repentance looked like. We're reading here that they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They did not have Christ. Remember this. They did not have Christ, obviously. It was just through the preaching of Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. So, um, so Jonah had gone in to this great city. They actually say it was three days it took to walk through this city of Nineveh. It was a huge city. This word that Jonah had been preaching reached the king of Nineveh. And I should say, I failed to mention, Nineveh was a sinful, evil place, by the way, the word tells us. 
So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. He called them to fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? So he doesn't even know. He's saying, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And this is the awesome part. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So God sent Noah or Noah Jonah um, to preach to Nineveh to basically say, "Hey, just so you know, this judgment's coming." They all believed Jonah. They repented, and God relented. And what Jesus is saying here, back in Luke, our our, our um, scripture for this morning, Jesus is saying. The people believed Jonah. They repented. But the Son of God is going to be the one that brings the salvation to this generation. So just as Noah was, I keep saying Noah, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and then was resurrected on the beach, Jesus is proclaiming his death, burial, and resurrection to these Pharisees, to these religious leaders, these ones who are, are basically taunting him by asking for a sign. He's done all of these works, and they're saying, yeah, whatever, show us a sign. And it's almost, I, I think for us, we have the whole canon of Scripture, but it's too much. Like, what, what else did they need? But Jesus didn't stop there. He gave a second example, and we see that in verse 31. And he talks about the queen of the south. Also, from the, it, it, it said that she was from um, Sheba. She was the, the queen of Sheba. And if you see in verse, we're not going to turn there, but you'll see this account in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. This queen of Sheba rised up, and, um, and, and actually I'll just read verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up, at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we see two of these, not parables, accounts, which I just as a side topic should show us that Jesus is showing us or stating that the Old Testament is Scripture because he is quoting it. But we have these accounts of Jonah and the Queen of the South or the Queen of Sheba. And like I said, we're not going to tur turn to 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles, but the quick overview of that story is the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, and she was a lover of the truth. She rose up and traveled across the earth to see Solomon and to hear about him and to find out what he was all about. 
And when she found out and saw how God had blessed him, she listened, she understood, and she believed um, the truth that was demonstrated by Solomon. And so Jesus is pointing at these two accounts, and he's saying, these people that believe these signs, because if you look on a map, when we look at Jonah, Jonah, like the city of Nineveh wasn't right on the beach. They, they wouldn't have seen him vomited up by this fish. It, they, he had to travel a distance to get to Nineveh. So they didn't even see that, but they believed this preaching. The queen of Sheba believed what Solomon was, was saying, and they turned. And what Christ is saying here, they, they have all of these signs. They have the Son of God here. They won't even go, they, they won't even try to seek out truth. And it's right there in front of them. And Jesus is saying, there's something greater right here in, in front of them. And he's pointing to the gospel. That's the important thing. He is pointing to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So this brings us to our second point I want us to see. Because Jesus is the light of the world, we must reject darkness. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. And so Jesus goes on and he starts talking about lighting of the lamp. And we see this again in this passage um, from, uh, or actually I just read verse 33. Um, but in John 8, he talks about it um, as well. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And this is an obvious statement. This is obvious. Would you, would you light a candle or would you light a lamp and put it under a basket? That doesn't even make sense. Jesus is talking about common sense here. He is being so obvious to them right now. This doesn't make logical sense. Why would you, would you light a light and put it under a basket? And he's not talking about a light, obviously. And we see this in other accounts of... Um, in Matthew 5, in Matthew 6, we see these simple messages, this idea of light and darkness. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the light. I am the light. I have not hidden anything from you. You, you can see this. I am proclaiming this light. And it's something I think sometimes it's so obvious, we've seen it before, that it's easy to pass over it as we read it. Yeah, that makes sense, right? You, you don't light a light. You don't put it under a basket. But this light is present all the time. Light, the, 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 um, uh, the characteristics of light is that they are there all the time. It's, it's our sight that is the problem. That is what he is saying here as we go on down to verse 34. He says, I proclaim the light. It is here. I've not hidden the light. But then he goes right in. Unlike the other verses where it talks about you put it on a stand so everybody can see, speaking of the gospel, he goes right into talking about your eye. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. 
But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. So again, we have this simple concept that I think is easy to miss. And we know that from our world around us. Some of you may have a lot of trouble seeing in the dark. You need glasses, right, to, to help see in the dark. I do. Those who are blind, is it a problem of light or is it a problem of the eye? Well, no, of course it's a problem of the eye. The light is always there. There's even light at, at nighttime. When we go out at night, sometimes we need our, our eye to adjust to the dark. If you've ever used night vision goggles, or anything, there's plenty of light at night. It's always there, but it's our human eye. It's our fallen eye that can't see the light. And that's what Jesus is pointing them to here. But he's not talking about our physical eyes. He's talking about something more important, that our eye, what we see, what we attach ourselves to, what we believe going back into those other accounts, that is what matters. We don't have to worry about if the light is there or not. The light is there. The gospel is there. The problem is, is that we are blind. They were blind. They were blinded by their own self-religion. They were blinded about what they were doing, their works, and they could not see the light. And so he's talking about this, but then it takes, it takes um, in verse 35, it takes a little bit of a, um, a more a darker tone, if you will, not to, not to um, uh, you play on words. He's talking about your, your eye being healthy, your body being full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. And, the, and then in verse 35, he says, Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And I want us, I don't want us to miss this. So the light is there. He's talking about the gospel. But then he says something about the light. How could the light be darkness? This is a warning about false religion. This is a warning about their conduct, reliance on works, the lack of faith in Jesus Christ. Because how are we saved? How could they be saved? It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have the light in front of us, but our eye, our heart, our sinful nature gets in the way. We don't have to worry. The light is there. Christ plus nothing equals salvation. We must understand that we bring nothing to the table all things are from him and through him and to him. Him being God, nothing. We are excluded. It is all about him. And the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually talked about this in his book about the Sermon on the Mount, which we see this same, um, these same parallel scriptures in part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to read this real quick for us. The formal Christian is a man who knows enough about Christianity to spoil the world for him. But he does not know enough about it for it to be of any positive value. He does not go with the world because he knows just enough about it to be afraid of certain things, 
And the people who live right in the world know that he is trying to be different and that he cannot be wholeheartedly with them. On the other hand, he has no real fellowship with the Christian. He has enough Christianity, he puts it in quotes, to spoil everything else, but not enough to give him real happiness, peace and joy and abundance of life. I think such people are the most pathetic people in the world. Do you see what Dr. Lloyd-Jones is saying here? He's saying you're better off cold or hot. Because at least if you're cold, you at least can get some very, very temporary enjoyment in this life. He's saying this lukewarm Christian knows just enough where he's just, just caught in this middle ground. His friends who are of the world really know he's trying to be something he's not. So it's a weird situation, but he doesn't know enough of faith and the saving um, of salvation of Christ to have full abundance and joy in life. He's going through the motions. He's going through the acts. And there's, there's more ominous statements in the word about this type of Christian. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and we're very familiar with this. God says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is works, amazing things, casting out demons, doing amazing things. And God will say at the time of judgment, at the judgment seat, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So this morning, we must understand, we must always be on guard about false works-based Christian Christianity if you want to say Christianity. But here's the more important thing. We must always be evaluating ourselves and working out our salvation. And of course, I'm not saying that we bring anything to the table, but we need to be sure that our salvation is based here, not on anything that you do, not on anything that you bring to the table, as I said before, and this is what Christ is saying to them. Be careful that the light that is in you is not darkness. The light that you are thinking is light, or, or the, I should say the darkness that you are thinking is light, is actually darkness. You are relying on your own works. So what can we expect when we go to God with empty hands? When you give up, when you're at your wit's end, you've tried everything. You've tried Sunday school. You've tried listening to 104.9. You've tried your Bible plan. Maybe you've tried witnessing. And you are still in this pathetic point in your life where you have no joy, you have nothing, you can't relate to your friends at work, 
You can't relate to those at church, those people around you that are always so stinking happy all the time. What do we do? What happens when we just give it away, when we just give up? When we stop relying on our own works, because what does the scripture say about our own works? They're nothing but filthy rags. What Jesus tells us in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light. And where did the light come from? Him. It's his light. The light is always there. We didn't capture the light. We didn't turn on the light. Remember, actually I didn't point it out. When he says your eye is the lamp of your body, is the lamp creating the light? No, especially at this point, the lamp just held it. They held the oil or whatever it was to hold the light. The light is, is from someplace else. And so in verse 36, he says, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of the dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And so this brings us to our last point I want to make. Because Jesus is the light of the world, we are then filled with his light when we trust him as our Savior. He brings the light. You bring nothing to the table. And when we go to him as our Savior, we are full of the light. And don't miss this here in verse 36. It's not just a glimmer of light. This word here, holy bright you are overflowing with light that is where our joy comes from the light of christ the light of the gospel we are filled with that when we take no part when we have no part in dark and then we start giving off the light it says here as when a lamp with its rays gives you light and actually, I quoted earlier John 8, 12, and this is what I meant to quote. Chapter 8, verse 12. And Jesus actually speaks to them. And it says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as we look at this whole account here, I don't know if you notice this, but when Jesus is talking about that this is an evil generation and it's seeking for a sign, he says, but no sign will be given. And he didn't stop there. And I think I would have, right? I think if I had done some pretty cool things and I was trying really hard, and some of you have may have been at this point in your life, I would have walked away. I'm not giving you your sign. I'm not playing your game. I've done what I've done, and I'm leaving. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, I'm not giving you the sign that you want, except the sign of Jonah. He, he does not turn their back on them. They are so evil, they are actually seeing that Jesus is doing his work through the power of Satan. But Jesus still does not turn his back on them. He says, I'm not giving you the sign that you want. I'm going to give you the sign I want, and here is the sign. 
They taunted him. They disrespected the, respected him. But Jesus still loves all generations. That generation previous, the current generation, enough to off, offer up the most wonderful and amazing sign ever. The gospel. He gives the light. He freely gives the light to those who will see it, that will look to that light. And you, we, this morning, we've been given this same, we've been given this same sign. In fact, we have more of a sign than they did. We have the whole canon of Scripture. Through the Holy Spirit and God's inspired word, you have the sign. We have the sign today. The world has the sign. We understand this. How many versions of the Bible do you have with you right now? If you're like me, you have probably the written word. You, if you have your iPad, you have a version. If you have your phone, you probably have one or two different apps, maybe more, that will give you the Bible. No, ju not just the Bible, multiple, multiple versions of the Bible. We have the sign. And it's very, very important that as we look at this, that we understand the importance. The Apostle John gives us a warning. And I do want you to see this. Sorry, I'm going to have you turn one more time. Turn to John chapter 12. And I think this would be a good place to highlight real quick. John chapter 12, verse 35. We'll look at 35 and 36. John chapter 12, verse 35 through 36. And this is important. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Do you see here? There is a limit. There is a limit to this light. There is a limit to this message. And we have to be very, very careful. We can't meddle with sin. We can't sit here today and say, you know what? I'm young I just really, I, I like sin X. You know what? I, I hear this word. I just, just a little bit more time. Just the summer. Just today. You can't just dip your toe in every Sunday and plan on sometime down the road finally deciding to deal with Jesus. Because this is from Jesus. This is not me. This is not Pastor Dan. This is not Pastor whoever. Jesus is saying it's here for a little while longer. And walk while you have the light, because the darkness will overtake you. Because it's going away. Jesus went away. There will be a point where Jesus will hide himself from sinners. This is not going to be ongoing. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. God will turn you over. And in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul records for us, 
And he's talking about sin and what happens with sinners. And in verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he goes through this whole long list of sin and debauchery that is recorded for us in Romans. Think about that for a second. God has limits that he will go with sin and that he is too holy to continue anymore. And when we see fit to not acknowledge God, he gives us up and he moves on. But remember in verse 36, when he says it back in Luke chapter 11, verse 36, we can be wholly bright. When we go to Christ and we accept that free gift, we are filled, overflowing with light. So today, you can be filled completely with the light of Christ. And the wonderful thing is, you don't have to do anything. The work is done. The light is there. We do not, you do not need to keep stumbling around trying to find your way. In this world, are you stumbling around trying to find your way? This world is full of darkness. But the work has been done. We have the sign. We have the light. So I ask you this morning, will you see the sign? Will you fall on your knees and be washed by the saving blood of Christ? Will you accept this light? Will you give up all of your works? Will you give up all of your striving? And I think sometimes we find comfort in the fact that we're not like the Pharisees, right? We're we're not, hopefully, judging Christ. We're trying hard not to judge others. But God tells us even our, our best works are nothing but filthy rags. But he brings us the light so that we can see. And all we need to do is accept it. And then we will be illuminated fully from within. So I ask you this morning, please do not leave here today. We say this so often, but in light of what Christ told, just told us in, in, um, in Romans and in John and what we just read in Luke, you heard it for yourself. I just read it to you. Do not leave here today. If you have questions, if you don't understand, don't leave here. I would love to talk to you. Pastor Andy would love to talk to you. Paul would love to talk to you more about this. And we'll just simply open up the word. We'll just simply open up the word and show you more of what God has for you. What he has demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we live in such a distracted world. We have the word all around us. And sometimes I wonder if actually that's more of a hindrance. Because we don't don't have to go and hide. 
We don't have to try to find it. It's, it's so around us that I, I'm afraid sometimes it becomes mundane. It does for me. It's so easy to pull up the word and read it that we don't even stop to, to dig in to see what it has for us. But Father, when, when, we, when we look at it, when we see what was done to Jesus, the wonderful things that he was doing, and that he was, he was totally um, made fun of, and, and they, they, they tried to make a mockery of him, these Pharisees and these scribes. But Father, I worry, would we do the same thing? Because we would be relying on, on what we know or, or whatever the case may be, our jobs or, or whatever. Father, help us to understand that he has paid the price and he has done the work. And we can just fall in his lap. We can fall at the throne of Christ and be washed cleanly of our sin. And be filled wholly with this wonderful, beautiful, perfect light. Help us to understand that. Help break through our sin and our hardened hearts and all that society heaps upon us today. Thank you so much, Father, that you would love us in the midst of our sin and our hate and us turned from you, that you would love us and spin us back around to you and your light. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for the whole canon of Scripture that you've given to us to this generation, that we can look and we can know how it ends. And help us, Lord, to not walk away from these warnings and just look at them as a warning for that generation. Your word is just as good today as it was then. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Help us to heed these warnings. Help us to see the, the wonderfulness of the cross and help us to accept that and walk from this day forward in your light and your salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.